This is the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast. G'day listeners, I'm your host Edgar Gresto. Today we're going to the riparian zone. <laughs> okay, enough flashbacks. Riparian land plays a unique role in the landscape. It provides habitat and supports diverse communities of plants and animals. It filters water, prevents erosion, and it supports productivity of the surrounding landscape. In some areas, many land use practices pose a potential threat to the condition of riparian land. Things like uncontrolled stock access, native vegetation clearing, and overuse from recreational activities. But there are things you can do to restore riparian land on your property. So in this episode, we're going to head up creek with a paddle and get some riparian restoration tips. And if you're lucky, we might just get a glimpse of some of Australia's most shy and elusive wildlife in the creek. My name is Lexi, short for Alexia. I live on a Valleyzand farm, which is in Jilliby in the Duralong Valley on the Central Coast. And the farm is a 100 acre block, 80% of which is land conservation area. So it's covered in a regrowth of forest. So we sit in a small valley saddled by two hills. And the bottom of one of these hills is Myrtle Creek. So it's a little stream that doesn't run every month of the year. It floods, savagely floods, which is always a surprise, given how trickle is the flow of the water on most days. And we have not necessarily a sighting of, but we suspect we have platypus sometimes roaming the creek banks. We've also had sighting of yabbies, which I was told might be a food source for platypus as well. So that gives you a bit of an idea of how the property looks. The immediate vicinity of the creek is on one side, the forest regrowth, uh, and the other side is a paddock with grazing stock. Just tell me the backstory of how you came to be here on the land. Have you got a sort of farming background or are you new to this world? My husband comes from a farming background, uh, having been born on a farm and, and worked on a farm for a while. But we both identify as city slickers. We left Sydney 11 years ago with the intention of raising our child in this landscape where we both had a similar upbringing. So I'm from the city, but I was brought up in a large suburban block and we had chickens, we had ducks, we had sheep, we had a massive veggie patch. So I wanted to give an opportunity for our child to grow with a, a connection to nature. And on top of that, having lived for so many years in, in Hong Kong, where you can imagine, you know, it's overcrowded and it's covered in concrete and steel. I also wanted to exit that, that and earth and ground myself in something a lot more natural. We fell in love with this property. Yeah, it, it ticks a lot of our boxes here in terms of well-being, in terms of nourishment, mental as well as physical nourishment, because we grow a lot of our food. But it's mostly that additional nourishment that we hadn't anticipated is to, to be connected with the life on this land. And it's quite magical, actually. It makes you constantly know that you are alive. <laughs> Beautiful. Can you tell me what was it like when you first arrived and how has that changed over the years being there? 
Well, first there was this romantic notion where the river really conveys a, a sign of fertility, of energy flowing, of life. And, you know, hearing the trickle of water is always a very soothing thing. So that's one of the highlights of this property. But the, the reality was a little bit more disastrous when we realized the state of that river. So when we brought the property, not only the river was completely blanketed by lantana and other kind of vines and weeds, trees had fallen across, it was blocking the water flow, was making it really looking murky in most parts. Even though I knew nothing about the native ecosystem of, of how it should be, uh, I had a feeling it wasn't healthy. Another aspect is that the previous owner had grazing stock go all the way to the river and actually was using lantana as a natural fence. The creek bed was obviously removed from access because of the lantana, but then also it created pockets where the grazing stock could actually access the river and started collapsing the banks, defecating in, in the river and really causing a lot of physical damage and potentially chemical damage as well to the water itself. The state of the riparian area through Alexia's property was an indicator of the landscape's overall health. And another indicator in the creek itself is the elusive platypus she mentioned earlier. Dr Michelle Ryan is a senior lecturer in ecology and environmental science at Western Sydney University, and she's been researching platypus and their role in our waterways since 2019. The platypus are a really iconic species. So within the food web, they play a really important role, but they also are a really important creature for us to connect with waterways. So we have found that we've been very successful in connecting people and the community with their waterways by showing them that there are platypus in their waterways. So throughout the Hawkesbury Nepean catchment, which is where the Hawkesbury Nepean platypus project focus, we have been looking firstly at where the platypus were. So Cat Eye Hills Environment Network, who are a local environmental group in the Hills District. And they were seeing a huge increase in development. So lots of small land holdings, five, 10 acre lots, 50 acre lots in their catchment, getting developed into small suburban blocks. They were starting to see a decrease in water quality and really concerned that there were platypus in their creeks Residents were telling them they were platypus there, but they weren't being recognised. So they received some funding uh, and we did our first round of eDNA sampling. So eDNA is like us, platypus shed DNA as they move through the waterway. So we know from those CSI shows that we are constantly shedding DNA. We can't commit a crime without leaving our DNA everywhere. And the platypus are the same. So we look for environmental DNA or eDNA in the water and that is a really non-invasive, easy way to tell that platypus are in that waterway. So we did that in the cat eye catchment and there were a very low number of reports platypus in there officially. So we were able to do eDNA over a few years. We've now added 20 more known locations of platypus in just that cat eye creek catchment, which is a large catchment, but a very small part of the Hawkesbury Nepean catchment. And we've been able to determine platypus presence in most creeks that come off the Hawkesbury and the Pan River. As part of this project as well, we've used the platypus 
as a way of connecting with communities and connecting people to their waterways and to care with waterways. So we've been able to run a number of planning with platypus days with land care. We've run platypus spotting events and heaps of community education about how to care for waterways to protect the platypus that we've got there. And I understand there's an app called Platypus Spot and also some great resources at the Australian Platypus Conservancy website, which has a lot of practical information, a bit of research. Can you talk us through what landowners can do to foster a positive environment for platypus? Yeah, there's some really easy things landholders can do. And one you've already mentioned it is report those sightings of platypus. So it's really important that we get an idea of where platypus are. So platypus spot, the Australian Platypus Conservancy, you can all report your sightings to them and they get uploaded to the greater scientific knowledge database. Some other things landholders can do is make sure that litter is removed. So lots of platypus get entangled in litter and it's hard for them to get out. Lots of farmers have plastic wrap that they wrap products with and their produce with. So removing that can really help. Joining a land care group as well, I will promote that because I've had such a good success working with groups and land care groups to do planting for platypus days and really coming together and working on creeks where you know have platypus is so rewarding just to know that you're helping make a difference and helping create more resilient, stable platypus populations. Paint the picture for me. What does a healthy platypus habitat look like? So platypus need strong, stable banks to be able to burrow. They rest in the burrow during the day as well as they create nests in their burrows. Things like having vegetation all along the banks because platypus eat water bugs and some vegetation in the water and organic matter in the water like fallen trees and debris, things like that, create habitat for the food for platypus. So the more platypus food we have in there, the more likely you're going to have platypus coming your section of creek and stay there. Having tall trees greater than five metres and a wide riparian zone is really important. The wider the riparian zone, so the distance from the bank, the further from the edges of the creek is what we're looking for. And we want to see at least three metres. We've seen platypus around when we have those riparian zones at least three metres wide. Also, when we have livestock on the banks of creeks, it increases erosion, which increases the amount of sediment and silt that goes in the water body. And this can have a big impact on the platypus's ability to forage, as well as platypus food abundance. So having a wide riparian zone fenced off from your livestock is really an easy way to help the platypus population in your area. Now, if you're a landowner like Alexia, faced with an eroded and silted up creek, and you want to help the local platypus population, what do you do? Well, never fear, because the Australian River Restoration Centre is here. They're a knowledge hub about rivers nationally, and they help farmers access information and funding for riparian restoration. Laurie Gould is the organisation's program manager. It's sort of a toolbox of funding incentives where farmers can access fencing and water and trees and erosion control and willow and weed control and that gets applied 
on-site relevant to the business of the farm. And the really critical part of that is actually our technical knowledge, but then also the landholders' knowledge of their property and then being able to work together in partnership to come up with solutions that not only fit within that sustainable farming framework, but also benefit the business of the farm. Some of them I've been working with for 20 years now, some of the farming families, which I personally find really rewarding. But also when we go into an area, first of all, we establish a need. Usually someone comes to us, partner with land care, partner with the local land services, in our case, the local government people, um, the Indigenous networks, and then sort of apply for funding as a team rather than always competing. And then when we get to the point of the project being delivered, the first thing we do is all get together and go, right, we've got this model. How do we best want to deliver it? What do your farmers think? And between us all, we know that sort of information. So normally delivery is very straightforward because we do all that background and that's all people focused. So we just apply projects in line with whatever funding we've happened to have got. And we get funding from all sorts of different places, federal funding, environmental trust in New South Wales, water New South Wales. You know, there's a bit of philanthropic funding and donations, but they're quite a small component. It seems to be a very big part of your organisation is not just coordinating that on groundwork, but really facilitating a lot of education. Are there any big ideas or common kind of aha moments that landowners have around river restoration, riparian zones that's like, I never thought of the landscape in that way? One of the big keystones of the work we do is science and knowledge. Getting that out to people in a way that is understandable is probably a key focus. So we have a lot of guides, you know, whether it's about blackberries, whether it's about frogs, we're just writing a tube stock planting guide at the moment. We've got erosion fact sheets right down to how to treat an erosion head cut with rock. (laughs) You know, it's very practical. And so the idea is we're producing these products that people can freely access in a way that people can understand and I think the biggest aha moment for farmers is we have this campaign called mess it up and slow it down as humans we like everything really neat and tidy and what we're saying to people is these systems need to be messy they need lots of woody debris they need leaf litter they need different types of vegetation whether it's trees shrubs grasses We don't want to promote monocultures. And we're just saying leave those bits of wood in the river because we've had farmers go, oh, it's just going to clean all that up. I'm glad I came to this field day. or (laughs) Because that complexity is actually what gives us clean water. So when you look at the ecological processes between whether it's the shrubs and the macroinvertebrates and the fish and the birds and everything else, even down to the slime on the base of the creek that we all go, ooh slimy that's a biofilm that actually converts ammonia to nitrate so poo to plant food so there's all these different layered complex processes going on and without the diversity and the complexity and messiness we just don't have clean water basically so i think having the reeds to filter sediment and vegetation to hold banks and whatever it happens to be that is the key i think to having a healthy river or waterway of any description. So let it be messy and wild, and then you'll have good outcomes that way without doing as much. What are some of the really simple kind of practical approaches that farmers could take to 
really make some great improvements to their landscapes? So probably I think the highest value infrastructure is fencing (laughs) because once you can get stock off waterways, you can then start to re-establish vegetation cover and ground cover being probably the biggest stabiliser. So some of our native plants, like the big sedges and things, they're just absolutely critical to slow down water, to hold soil, to filter water. And then with our things like having a diversity of shrubs and trees, so then you get a diversity of macroinvertebrates. So we've got all these crazy little bugs, like we've got the shredders, the filter feeders, the reduced detritus from coarse to very fine, and then all of these processes that rely on that diversity, and then they provide a food source for our birds and fish and platypus. And so once you start, vegetation is probably the most critical thing. And in order to put in a fence, then often people will need stock water. And then they can also access things like tube stock or if they need to put vegetation back in if it's completely gone. They're probably the most critical things, I would argue. And to do that, obviously, it needs to fit in with paddocks and management of farms. 95% of waterways will respond to just a fence. And we start to get back things like chains of ponds and just with the complexity and the slowing of the water. But then things like erosion control, might be more specialist. So some erosion might be treated with rock or in the case of the, if it's bed lowering, for example, in the case of you might apply leaky weirs to those sort of channelized swampy meadows. They're sort of more specialist advice. You really need to know what the processes are for those to be able to properly fix them. But they're a really small percentage of the work that we do. The fence is probably the most valuable asset. For Alexia, who we heard from at the start of the episode, how did she tackle her lantana-infested, cattle-trampled creek bank? First thing for us was to assess the level of damage and also assess what kind of resources can we use to repair that, knowing that if we were to bring machinery, it would potentially have more disastrous consequence than another method. Bringing chemicals would be disastrous for the ecology of the water itself and the banks. So we had that sort of time to evaluate the damage and evaluate the resources. And then we rolled up our sleeves and we went on with it. The first thing for me that was clear, even if I had no education on that matter, was to remove grazing stock from the waterbed and from the creek banks. It was like an eyesore to see this bank collapsed, raw, like the dirt was not covered with any vegetation. So the problem is to remove the stock, we had to fence the river out of the stock access. But to fence that river, we had to tackle the lantana. So what we did is just remove lantana by hand. And that was the most painstaking. There was tears and there was blood. (laughs) There was a lot of curses being said. (laughs) Because that was a really mammoth project. So we had to peel away layers of lantana, some growing on this side of the bank, some growing on the other side of the bank, all intertwined in a big mess in the middle, some taking roots in the river. I mean, it was really seriously messy. And so I started on my own without any machinery other than my own two hands, my good sense of humor, and a a good pair of loppers. 
And eventually the occasional cut and paste technique, which I got to learn from the local land services, it was a mammoth task. So I managed to enthuse volunteers to come and work for us against a room and board and, and education and the property itself is the only reason why people will want to come here anyway. So that was payment for hours and hours spent tackling Montana and it took us a good two full years working just solely on that. Basically, that the priority was remove La Lantana, fence off, and then later let nature do the rest with natural regrowth of whatever seed bank was held underneath that Lantana. Whatever comes up that looks native and has a potential to consolidate the banks, maybe filtrate some of the excess of nutrients from that waterbed, that's the phase we are now. We're letting nature do the work. When we think of lantana, we think of it as a weed and some that I've spoken to have tried to untangle the ideas that we have around weeds and think of them more as plants and the role that they're playing in the landscape. I tend not to look at weeds as weeds, they're just plants in the wrong place. The blankets of lantana were so thick and the shallow root system really suck out any kind of moisture and any kind of nutrients that there could be, preventing anything native and potentially ecologically more useful to grow. It does actually look like a war zone when you step into these big, massive clumps of lantana. One thing that I was very concerned about is if I remove all that lantana, there was the erosion aspect that I could create. So what we did is we tackled it in... Think of it as a patchwork. Let's do two meters here and let's leave a big clump of lantana there and then do another two meters there and, and do that kind of dotted pattern across the creek. And not only for the biodiversity, like the small birds or the lizards or the snakes or what have you, to have a, a, an escape route and still be able to hide in the remaining clumps of lantana and also enabling the ground to stabilize by itself still being kind of hugged by a, a bracket of lantana on both sides. And also it was for us a, a way to test whether the ground was stable enough to survive on its own if we were to remove that lantana. And the proof was in the pudding. Quickly enough, the, the colonizer of that bare landscape came and they were the grasses, they were the ferns, they were the small shrubs. And, and then what we found is that we had the seed bank injected with light, injected with nutrients, injected with moisture, and it all sprang out of the ground in almost no time. Another strategy that we used is we would create a raft with dead wood and dead branches, preferably not lantana, but something that's already dead, and create a little, think of it as a moat around this sapling, for instance. And then as we tackle lantana by hand, one branch at the time and fold it and stack it very neatly, because I like order, uh, on this raft of dead wood around in a moat uh, shape around that sapling. And then it would create a physical barrier so wallabies or whatnot would not want to chew on that sapling. And then over time, the lantana would die and would decay and would compost In this case, Alexia found a way to make use of the lantana, and even though she worked through it in a patchwork manner to reduce erosion risk, she firmly believes it had to go. Whilst for Alexia, lantana was out of place, Laurie Gould from the Australian River Recovery Centre says that every landscape is different, and how you manage the situation is really dependent on the needs of the environment. Weeds are obviously a big issue depending on what they are. 
but people put them into a black and white category, either they're good or bad, but it is a huge grey area. Just to be clear, I am 100% native diversity just because our animals and wildlife and right down to the little bacteria are adapted to it. I'm not in favour of putting weeds in areas where they're not, but it's more beneficial to look at a plant and seeing what it's doing and what threat it's providing to a site before deciding what to do about it. So even with willows, <laughs> there are different types of willows that do different things in different settings, which we need to assess before we all launch in and get them all out with bulldozers. With something like a crack willow in small streams, they can just become wall-to-wall and just crowd out everything else. Whereas a couple of weeping willows, they're all females, they don't seed. They're quite innocuous and we just don't bother worrying about those. The difficulty is because there's no black and white response to are willows good or bad or are weeds good or bad, it gets very polarised. Are there any particular educational tools, I suppose? You mentioned a lot of resources that you've got. So we have a very simple stream assessment checklist, which farmers can use to look at their river and say, well, what condition is my river in? Right through to some quite complex monitoring, like rapid appraisal of riparian condition, which you need a little bit of training to be able to implement. That's how we monitor all of the projects that we do. And, you know, we're happy to talk to people as well. (laughs) So I frequently just get a random call from someone out in Dubbo or something that says, I've got this creek. And I say, all right, well, send me some photos. I'll chat to you about it on the phone. And then I'll send them an email with the resources that's specific. So we provide that service as well, all for free. For Alexia, she started her riparian restoration after meeting local land services staff at a nearby farm open day. Along with members of council, they came to Alexia's property and came up with a plan, which was jointly funded by LLS and Alexia. Fast forward to how things are looking now, what's been the outcome of restoring the riparian area and can you describe what it looks like now? In terms of the outcome, the banks are stabilised. It's a lot more beautiful. You've got a natural regrowth of your ferns, your native grasses. There's tea trees that are starting to sprout again. There's a few cheese trees as well that are meant to be uh, growing in those riparian areas. There's a ton of other species that are coming up. In terms of the water quality, there's always a one waterhole that is always murky and that's always been like that even though we've removed an antenna I think it's a matter that the soil maybe there's a spring underneath that disturbs the the chemical component in the water or whether it's a certain type of algae that grows there but it's only contained in one water hole but the rest of the water is flowing clear native biodiversity leaving off that creek we do have a lot more little birds I forget the name of their kind that make a little burrow on the banks of the river. And I'm sure we still have the platypus, but we haven't had any sighting. Beautiful. What does it mean for you where you live could be the site of a platypus? It's such a significant Australian animal. It is almost like the Holy Grail because the only platypus I've seen is at the zoo. To me, this is almost like when the frogs... In the evening, we can hear the frogs croaking from the creek. And to me, this is a good sign. It's a sign that there's a balance in the ecosystem. Because if you've got the frogs, you've got whatever feeds the frog and you also whatever feeds off the frog. So you kind of lengthen the food chain. 
if we have the platypus on this creek and if we can prove its existence, then we can tell that there's enough food source or there's a safe habitat for that animal to survive here and to thrive. And that's the holy grail aspect is it's not good enough to repair the creek for the sight of it. And, the, you know, it's looking at a lot more natural and more beautiful and more romantic and so on and so forth. That's one thing. But knowing that this action could have actually got an, an impact on the, the sustainability of the wildlife that depends of it, uh, that's, that, that, yeah, that makes me go all funny inside. <laughs> I can hear that there's been a lot of work done to get the property to where it is today. And for others listening to this, how does it make you feel, I suppose, knowing what you've achieved? Oh, very humbled. And I, I do reflect on the amount of work that, that I did and along with my husband and woofers and other volunteer friends, anyone can do it. You know, I don't have a PhD in environmental science with, for repairing areas. No, I just, I'm a city girl with big dreams of landscape. So there's a strong sense of humility because, yeah, there was a lot of moments where I wanted to give up. Like, oh, gosh, let's bring in the big guns. Let's take the backhoe and get that clump out to make it faster. But faster would have been more destructive. So there's a lot of personal learning that I gained from doing that. I seemingly did a lot of the work, but nature did the rest. Nature did sprout all these seeds off the ground. Nature did create this mat of fungi that holds the ground together. Nature did bring the biodiversity back and that feeling of having you know, a partnership with this piece of land. It has a strong spiritual component. Have there been any mindset shifts for you? Have you had any light bulb moments or any insights around changing the way you think or the way you see the landscape at all? It took me a while to understand the concept of chaos and order. In ecology, chaos is when all the elements of the ecosystem are not jointed together. And order is when all the elements are communicating to one another, they're connected to one another, they create nodes and there's pathways of exchange, whether it's nourishing exchange or informational exchange. And to me, the ecosystem that Lantana created was that of chaos. And conversely, what I'm now experiencing with a creek bank having revegetated themselves, even though it looks messy, so aesthetically it looks chaotic and yet ecologically, there's order because you've got diversity of species, you've got diversity of habitat and food source connected to each other, creating ecological order. So it took me a while to accept that nature would grow in a messy shape, but now I can see the order that it's created and the ecological balance that it's added. I'm really hearing that you've gone on a journey through the process of being on your hands and knees and sitting there and observing and seeing the need for complexity. Yeah, absolutely. And that also follows a journey of self-education on land restoration technique, on regenerative farming, on permaculture design. And having all that theory in the background was good to understand the concepts, but seeing it in action made it alive and was the proof needed to actually prove that whatever was in these books does exist and does work and accepting to slow down. Nature takes its time. 
and it's only a human thing to want to do things fast. It's been a slow burn, but it's obviously yielded so much for the property and for yourself. Any plans for the future and, and what's next around that? We've had a total of five floods on this property and the last three came really one after the other. And the last one was particularly savage. So that one caused a great deal of damage on the creek bed. So we had a bed lowering, we had scoring of the banks, we lost four creek crossings. But the good news is all the areas that I have left to revegetate itself, I've held. The only areas that gave away are the areas where there was still a human connection. So the creek crossings, for instance, concrete that were put by previous owners to cross, these were not meant to be there in the ecosystem. So if we can come up with, say, creek crossings that can mimic what nature would have in those instances, that's my pet project. So wish me luck. And maybe whilst Alexia is working on the creek crossing, she might spot that elusive platypus. I asked Dr. Michelle Ryan, our platypus expert, who we heard from earlier, if she had any tips from the research she's done. We've had some amazing experiences. So we get to go out a couple of times a week, set nets and trap platypus. So we get to remove them from the nets, have a look at their health, measure, weigh them, microchip them and then we get to release them. So my favorite part of all of that is when we open the pillowcase at the end and they scoot off into the water, it's a really beautiful moment. They look at you for a few seconds and then dive off. They're quite shy creatures, but one of the best things you can do is to go to a waterway on an overcast day, just at dusk and just sit there and be quiet. Put your phone away, watch the waterway and start looking for any signs of movement and you might see a platypus pop up. There was an interesting guide on the Australian Platypus Conservancy about exactly what are the signs to look for if you're looking for ripples or if you see kind of a V-shaped arrow going through the water, that's a platypus swimming upstream. Obviously, again, one of those things about helping us to see the landscape differently, isn't it? Being more aware of our surroundings. Yeah, I think that if you are lucky enough to live on a creek that has platypus, that you become the custodians of that creek and that platypus and really take that on board that you now have a duty to care for them. It's a wonderful thing to do and really try and engage with your waterway and understand your creek system and how you can help it better. And I just think that's a beautiful thing to go down to the creek at the end of the day with your family and watch platypus swim. It's the Australian dream. The Big Shift podcast is proudly produced by Grow Love Project in partnership with Greater Sydney Local Land Services. Thanks to all our guests who've generously shared their time and their stories. To find out more about the opportunities they've talked about, we've provided some links in the show notes. And remember, if you like what you heard, please share it. Thanks for listening.